Hello, and welcome to the next episode of OrthoReal Podcast. Uh, thus far in our podcasting juggernaut, we've talked with uh, thought-leading surgeons across the country, uh, folks in the medical device industry. We're going a little bit different direction today. We're talking with someone who has many, many times been an orthopedic patient, uh, but not just a patient. This is someone with uh, an incredible uh, athletic background. Uh, those of you with any exposure to powerlifting and strength sports have likely heard of Dave Tate. Uh, Dave has authored 20-plus uh, books, written over 2,000 articles, spoken at hundreds of events. In his powerlifting career, he had personal best of a 935-pound squat, 610-pound bench press, 740-pound deadlift, and a 2,205-pound total. In addition to his prolific writing and speaking career, Dave Tate, in 1998, founded Elite FTS, Elite Fitness Systems. They can be found at EliteFTS.com. They are a supplier of strength equipment to recreational athletes, but also to professional sports franchises and major universities across the country. Uh, Dave is sought after. Uh, as a powerlifting uh, and strength coach uh, nationally and internationally. We are delighted to have him and hear about his experiences uh, in life and in connection with orthopedic surgery. Joining me for this adventure today is my occasional sidekick, Kevin Brown of Device Nation, uh, to give us some uh, additional questions and insights as we uh, spend some time with Dave Tate. Thanks for joining us. Uh, welcome, Dave Tate. Yes, thank you. Thanks for having me. So, obviously, uh, a little bit of a departure for some members of our traditional audience here. Um, we talk to a lot of surgeons and folks in the uh, medical device world. For those that are unfamiliar, uh, tell us the origin story of powerlifting superhero uh, Dave Tate. Um, <laughs> I started powerlifting as a pre actually as a preteen, you know, at 12 years old, did my first competition when I was 13 and over, I did my last competition in 2004, I believe. And I mean, there's, there's a lot of history in there. So I guess the best way to summarize my competitive years is now looking back on it because it's, it's been a while and I've, I've seen, hundreds if not thousands of people come through the sport i i did not have and i know a lot of people say the same type of thing i didn't have the best genetics for the sport but i can look back now after seeing everything else and definitively say that's definitely true they weren't the worst or i wouldn't have been able to compete at the level that i was but to to tie it into what we're going to talk about on this podcast the a big part of the reason why i was able to get to the the point that I was able to get to was, and everybody throws around the, the word hard work or the words hard work. That's a, that's a big part of it, and the and longevity is a big part of it. You stay around in something long enough, you know, everybody else falls out, you know, so, and and you and you learn and you kind of rise from that. But I had to uh, uh, the word I had to train harder, so it's so subjective, right? So it's hard to define. I had to push my body probably a lot harder than a lot of the other people that I trained with that were better than I was 
And because of that, I do believe, looking back, that there is a price I paid for that with, you know, the orthopedic issues that I've had over time. And we can talk about how that breaks down or how I think that breaks down along, you know, genetics and other, and other variables. But it would be very naive to be able to say training didn't have any role in that, even though a lot of people do. You know, a lot of people will say that. But um, that was a price I was willing to pay. I don't know if I truly understood it when I was younger, but I don't regret it. So you, you very definitely are and, and were very passionate about doing this, and it, it came at some cost, which you've talked about in a very, well, in a broad sense, but also in as much detail as you would like to. Can you, can you run us through some of your orthopedic history, um, injuries, yeah. surgeries? Yeah. Um, I will throw in some soft tissue ones, even though it, I guess it wouldn't traditionally be defined as orthopedic, but I do think it does have some bearing. So shortly after high school, I started to have uh, pet tears. It's a soft tissue tears, nothing that's major tears, but enough that it disrupted training for three or four weeks. You think that it needs surgery and it doesn't, just soft tissue work. And, but it was happening very frequently. So I had to figure out how to get that under control at a very young age. But I think what happened there is you start to create, because it was in my right side, so it's starting to create this imbalance between the right and the left to where it started to create, you know, shoulder issues that reamed its head later down the line. So, and I did have the left pec tendon did detach, and that had to be surgically repaired. So that that's what I think created the biggest imbalance because now, Shortly, uh, probably five years later, my right shoulder, which now we're going to start to get into some of the more ortho, began to bone spurs, arthritis, and degeneration to the point where I don't know if this was the right decision looking back on it now. It hurt like hell. You know, I could train through it, but it was very, very super distracting. So I just kind of framed it because it would have been my first joint surgery as well shit pitchers do it after every season you know how what kind of stupid logic is that but it worked for me and so i'll just go get it cleaned up and have that done and force the recovery which was a good decision at the time you know because i had uh, the nationals which were four months off or something like that and i wanted to do that but what happened with that is a year later they had to go back in and take the bone spurs all the bone spurs that were taken out had come back and the arthritis was worse so had to get it redone that's after the second time i was a little more cautious on the rehab you know it's played it a little bit smarter but then six years later it needed replaced and I've not done anything to replace that, but it is, it, it's, a, it's a mess. So I can't grab a squat bar anymore. That's what retired me from the sport. I can't hold a squat bar on my back. Uh, I can't lift my arm over my head. And it's, I don't want to make it sound like it's a, a, it's a victim thing because it's relatively pain-free. If, if it was anything what, like what my hips were, I'll get into that in a second, I would have definitely had it replaced. But when even now when I look at the the – the success rate of what I see success for shoulder replacements, it's not, it's not, it's not, not something I want to do. 
I can I can do almost everything that I want. I have some life limitations, but after 20 years, you're just kind of used to it. I let that be, and I should have taken it as a, as a hint. And I believe it was 20, I got my notes here, 2017, no, 2014, 2012, where I had uh, my hip, my left hip. Just who's your audience? Your audience is, is pretty much surgeons. It's all over the place. We've got surgeons, device reps, patients, and, and we want it to be anybody that'll listen. So just uh, just tell us Dave Tate's uh, take on, yeah, on okay. your hip replacement and replacements and all about them. All right. I don't. Well, the reason I ask is I don't want to dive too deep into the symptoms because you guys already know what they no, all are. No, no. Right? Get get after it. Tell us tell okay. us what was going on. Well, the pain, right? So the with the hip, the first one, it, it was the pain. You know, it's like, what the hell? You know, what is this? And uh, the confusing part for me with that was it was it was groin and kind of shooting down the leg, but also lower back. So it's like, what the hell? You know, so I'm getting MRIs done and they're finding bone spurs pretty much everywhere. And I'm like, well, what the hell is this? Because, you know, the hip surgeon wants to do a hip replacement. The back guy wants to do back surgery. And I'm like, well, what? we got to figure this out, you know, because if I get the hip done, but it doesn't take the pain away, then, then what, what was that for? And so this, that was about a year process. And over the period of that, the, the first cortisone shot, it did help. It was ultrasound guided that it helped. But as, as you know, as soon as you do that, you're, you, you can't do surgery for X period of time. So it's, it's kind of a risk because if it doesn't work, you're going to be in pain for a little while longer. And so after seeing several different surgeries, sur- uh, surgeons and doctors and different imaging, the, the Politi, Dr. Politi here in Columbus did, it was the first time I had x-rays done on the table from multiple positions. All the other ones were just the old school, stand in front of a wall, take the pictures. When he showed me those and showed me how impacted the hip was and that I had fractures going up through the, the girdle because it was impacted, it became pretty clear what the problem was. So went in, had that done. He used a posterior approach. And I trusted him because Dr. Eric Serrano is a friend of mine, been a doctor of mine forever, highly regarded. He's done thousands of these things. And I don't know the specifics on the procedures as you would but the way he explained it to me is it's a posterior approach but he does very little cutting of the muscle he's just moving shit out of the way and so the the recovery would be fast and the recovery was fast you know it's three or four weeks after that i was going on a cruise to the caribbean and a funny story with the recovery with that though because it will show a little bit of my meathead mentality and we'll talk about rehab a little bit more is anytime i've had a surgery done i want you know I want to get back and and, and move. You know, I'm not the type of person that can just sit around. And so when I went in for the first real update, I think it's at four weeks, maybe six weeks. I can't remember what it was. At that time, I had, uh, and it was was a very high box. So for those that don't know, you can squat down to a box, stand back up, just like a barbell squat. Or in a clinical setting, just say a sit to a stand. So in a high box, like a 25, 26, 27-inch box, high box, 
I had done 315 for 15 reps. And um, at this four-week, six-week point, and I, I was happy about that because I tested it before I went into surgery, and that's about what I did. So that way, I, and keep in mind, before surgery, it hurt like crazy. It had no stability. And so the 315, it may sound impressive to some, it sucks for me. It was bad. <laughs> but so the way I figured this was, as soon as I got back to there again, everything from that point was uphill because it wasn't going to get any better from where it was before. And when I showed him the video, he, he saw the first two reps and he handed me the phone back. So he didn't want to see anything like that ever again. And I'm like kind of <laughs> pissed. I'm like, dude, there's 18 more reps here. You know, you only looked at the first two. And then, then this is when I realized that replacements and devices and things that they're going to put in you, they're not the same as going in there and, you know, screwing a tendon back into a bone. And he explained how the, the, the bone has to grow through the, the implant or the, the replacement for it to hold and use the analogy of, you know, hanging a 50-pound picture on a wall with one of them tiny, tiny screws that you might see for electronic devices. And, um, and that's how much stability that plate had at that point in time because it's, it's porous, you know, it hasn't grown through to be able to hold it. So, my, so I got that. I'm like, okay, but then when can I do it? And um, so we moved on from there, but that, that was that one. And I knew at that time they were both going to have to be done. We opted to not have double replacement for just recovery reasons. And I also did think that I, was able, I would be able to, to put off the second one, the, the right one. And I tried, you know, I, I did, I tried, and I did for a little while, but five years later, I had to have that one done. The, um, the history with that is I wanted and would have rather have had Politi do that one as well. But if anybody's been on the receiving end of a hip replacement and you've been through one, you know what's coming down the road with the other one. And the pain towards the ass end before most people will have it replaced, it's, it's, it's not livable. It's, it's waking you up in the middle of the night. It's 24-7. And we're, we're going down that road with the other one and I knew it's, you know, it was already bad. And the soonest I could get in was going to be three more months. And it's like, I can't, I'm not doing this again. You know, I was trying to stay ahead of the, ahead of the table. And Dr. Ellis is also very well respected. And a friend of a friend was able to get me in there. And we got it done, you know, within a month. And he used an anterior approach, which oddly enough, the anterior approach for me, was a freaking nightmare for the recovery. I was in a recliner for five weeks, with leg swelling, and, and I'm just gonna say it's a one-off because it's definitely not common. It's usually the posterior takes longer. The anterior, I would, it was a nightmare. You know, so it's, I still wonder if something happened during the procedure I don't know about. Well, so, um, so this is kind of an interesting point uh, to jump off on, and that's something that gets uh, debated in the, uh, in orthopedics, really, and in joint replacement. And both approaches can work very well. I think that some of the literature and, and a lot of the thought process behind anterior approach is, is for a quicker recovery. Uh, but it, it may be situational. I, I'll be honest, I had a, a 
conversation with a good surgeon friend of mine um, within the last couple of months that does a, a fair amount of both. He's a he's a, a very very frequent and very common anterior approach surgeon, and his take is you you get a a big guy that young muscular male in, in their fifties. It's uh, the approach can be difficult and, and getting everything out of the way, as you said, with your first one uh, can be can be tighter and you end up doing a lot of retracting and a lot of soft tissue release. And he does feel like in that particular patient that that anterior approach may be a little bit more uh, traumatic. So uh, I say that not that part's not science. That's just yeah. somebody's opinion. But it, it sort of correlates with uh, with somebody like you. Yeah, and either way, you know, for the people that are listening, either way, two different approaches. One had longer recovery, probably a harder recovery, definitely more frustrating recovery than the other one. It's three months after both of them. You're, you're in the same spot anyhow, at least I was. It's just, you know, one three months was easier than the other. But does it really matter when you're a year post looking back because all you really want then is you know the function and the the, the being pain free. Listen, that that is one hundred percent what our our literature supports is that these all get to the same place. So I think you really do want everything done well and done in a way that's going to be durable and, and yeah. that works well in in your particular surgeon's hands. So I think that's absolutely the perfect way to state that. Yeah, and they and, and in both cases with with both surgeons is they they knew. What, what I was going to do with them afterwards, you know, that I'm still going to train hard, you know, I'm going to still train heavy. And we talked about, you know, limitations and, you know, all those things and kind of work that into there. And so I was more concerned with what's it going to be like a year from now, you know, a year after, am I going to be able to do the things that I want to do? And how long am I going to be able to do the things I want to do, which is the other, you know, kind of a, a morbid conversation that, I had with the first one is I was in my mid forties, I believe for the first one. And you go into it, you really don't know a whole lot about it. And my advice to anybody is you, you want to do your, your internet research, but only, only well enough to, to be able to ask your doctors and surgeons better questions, not well enough to go in there and think that you can tell them what to do because (laughs) That it's it's a it's a bad it's a bad thing, you know. And when when I'll talk to people that are contemplating getting a hip replacement, and I listen to what they're telling me. I'm like, where in the hell did you get this from? And you know, it's the internet or or what it's going to be. But the conversation I had with Dr. Politi was, you know, what do you want to do? How do you see yourself moving forward? And my question was, well, how long is this going to last? And you can't give a definitive answer to that, but said if you're going to go hard with it, probably 10 or 15 years, then we'll do it again. Then you might be able to get 10 years out of the next one. And then there's pretty, there's not really a whole lot of options yet. And so I'm doing the math and I'm like, well, if I don't die before 75, what the hell does that mean? I'm in a wheelchair. And I think, I think anybody going down this road needs to actually have that conversation with themselves, you know, to be able to, to think of what those options are kind of going forward because it's going to play into at least if you're the mentality that i have it's going to play into how you're going to train afterwards 
Yeah. So I guess what I'm saying is after the first one, after these these first ones, I'm 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 making the modifications as smart as I possibly can, but I'm not doing them in such a way that I'm going to change my entire life because of it. I'll have that conversation if something breaks off on it or if we have to do something, you know, later that because it wears out, then I'll have that conversation because that but yeah. It's hard to explain what I'm saying because a lot of people that are going to get hip replacements are just going to make the decision they're done and they're they're just going to change their entire life. Well, I think you're exactly right. Is it's having a conversation with your surgeon with with what's this expected to look like? What are your expectations? What kind of a demand level are you going back to this? And it's a and part of the reason that I, I really looked forward to this conversation and to talking to you about it is. Um, yours is more of an outlier situation, if you will. And it's the same, same thing on my end of this. So I've done, uh, some hip replacements and knee replacements on, uh, bodybuilders, people with, uh, with really strong sports backgrounds that are large and that are going to be high demand on their implants afterwards. And I've, I've got a patient that, you know, sends me a video of him leg pressing a thousand pounds sort of thing. And I, you know, I'm, I'm glad he's doing great, and I don't really know what to do with that. I can go pull articles <laughs> about. Well, you know, I can go. I can. I, know, re- I, know. I can read an article about how long these are supposed to last and, and what happens with this in a big population of people. Um, but you know, where where do I find the study on on guys that weigh 250 and that are gonna gonna lift this much weight with it, and what happens to these implants? And so it's a little more uh, unique situation. And I would love your thoughts on on getting back to training. And I know, um, you know, these kind of things are not uncommon in strength sports. I think uh, Eddie Cohen's had a hip or two. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of uh, lifters and strength athletes that end up with these sorts of things. And anecdotally, do you know about recoveries and any problems with them or, or what, what sort of things no, people think- get back to? Yeah, and I wonder because I, I obviously I'm, I'm getting older each year, so I don't know because if I'm you know 54, so I don't know if I'm looking at you know Larry Pacific, if I'm looking at the people that are 74 and have had hip replacements. I don't know how prevalent it was then, but I don't know if that really matters because the skill set of the surgeons and the technology and the devices were not what they are now. Absolutely. Then either way more acceptable. So it's almost not worth even going down that road. But what I can say is amongst my peers and the people that I've competed with, I know more people that have had hip replacements than not. Mm. I mean, there it's, 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 it's almost ridiculous. I mean, it's, I hate to say that if anybody is going to do, you know, powerlifting, and I, this is not bodybuilding, powerlifting is different. For a long period of decades, their, their, their likelihood of a hip replacement is, from my opinion, it's probably pretty high. Now, the difference I do believe with uh, powerlifters and the bodybuilders is uh, the repetition of movement pattern. So the, the powerlifters are squatting one to three times a week, every week for decades. Bodybuilders are training that muscle group from multiple different angles so that wear and tear across the joint is going to be different than what it's going to be. 
Um, and there's probably other factors as well, but I, I really do try to figure out why is it more prevalent in one than the other? And that seems to be the case. The now, I mean, I remember when Eddie had his done, he went overseas and I, I really didn't understand why he was doing that then. Um, I, in his mind, he probably thought it was better. His second one he had done here in the States and but recovery wise from everybody that, that i know and keep in mind that's a, it's a very biased skewed demographic because we're mm -hmm. talking people that competed for 30 years or more uh the recovery's always been good now they change you know that we we all put our own this is the weird part we all put our own self-imposed limitations that come from the surgeons that we kind of probably bend to our own bias if i'm going to be completely honest and um and then have conversations with the surgeons to see what they think and it, it puts you guys in a tough spot right because you're talking about this leg press guy and you you can't really sit there in the profession you're in and the job that you do and say that's a good idea you just compared to what the other idea would be of just not like pressing a thousand pounds at all but you got to understand the mindset of the athlete and that's where the the communication is so vital and this is where the meatheads make the biggest mistake because they don't build the communication with, and I think the surgeons are more important than the physical therapists, but they got to understand the surgeons also don't have time. You know, they're, they're, sure. they're kind of not, they're not their friend. I mean, you want to see them do well, but you're not their friend. You can't talk to them for an hour about their squat workout. Um, but you can talk to them about real restrictions and limitations. In other words, don't squat ass to the grass and want to throw your knee inward. That's a stupid decision. Sure. You know, and you know, or sissy squats are probably not a really good idea. You know, there's there's certain things that are going to fall in there. And but to answer your question, yeah, the recovery from those guys has been great. You know, they're not. I've not seen anybody. I'm not saying it didn't happen. That's got a total hip replacement that went back to competing again. Sure. Uh, on the converse, have you seen people uh, break implants or have, have major issues that you felt like were the result of, of training afterwards? No, but that's my biggest fear sure. is, is that, you know, and I think that I know how I try to caution myself around that. The, the only, there's only a couple cases that I know of problems with implants and one of them was slipping down ice stairs, you know, so a fall. Yeah. You know, and the other one was, I think, a motorcycle. I mean, something they shouldn't have been doing in the first place. But, um, and, sure. but the, the the fear that I've always had with that is if that thing pops out and it's going to be put back in again, you just weakened it for the rest of the life of that hip. So now what are your restrictions? And that, that's going to be a different conversation. Well, to the upside, I mean, I, I think these are incredibly durable implants as you said they've continued to improve design uh, over the years and so most people can certainly expect a very uh, long lifespan from them and um, it, it sounds like you're you know at least contemplating those things but at the at the end of the day you know what's my job in this and really I'm I'm, I'm there to help the patient and to help them make wise decisions and do what they want to do and get back to the kind of life that they want to have, whatever that looks like. I'm not really there to, to make mm -hmm. judgments about that. I'm, I'm there to advise and try to help. That, that's, that's the deal. Um, 
during your recovery, either or either pre or post, anything special you did, uh, training wise, supplement wise, bands, uh, nutritional stuff, anything that that you felt like was was your own spin on it that was particularly good? Yeah, I mean, let's define recovery first. So I'm going to say recovery is you know after you after you're mobile without a walker. So that's until you can you need the walker for some people three days a week whatever it's going to be the that's i think very highly dependent upon uh the the inflammation you know and just moving you know the basic things that there's a lot of things that happen after that first week that i don't believe where we are in control of there's a lot we are, but there's a lot that we're just not. So once you get past that time, that you not have to worry about blood clot strokes and you know all these other things that are very very bad that could happen. You know, once you're past that, then for me the way that I looked at it was I had to, I need stability before than anything. So still doing all the rehab exercises, but those become for me, they became very easy after two days. So the, uh, let me go back. It, the stability is at the same point in time for me as gait. The, from what I've seen with any surgeries with anybody that I've known, and the hips being a big one, is I have no idea, I'm going to rant a little bit, what, what these therapists are doing because they're having people do all these different exercises, but they can't teach them how to walk without a freaking limp. You know, they, they've been limping for three months before the surgery. And uh, if they're hard headed, they're not going to use a cane before the surgery. So their gait's a mess. You just broke their leg, right? And you just put a, a, a new, a new hinge in there. So fix your gait because that's not just the hip that we're talking about. That can be your lower back. And you know, that that's a lot of things orthopedically. And if you got to use the walker for two weeks, use the freaking walker, but make sure you're walking with a good gait. And so for me, that's a huge thing. If it's a friend of mine that has a hip replacement, the first thing I want to see them do is walk. And I will sit there and yell in their face to make sure that they're walking right. It's, not, it's so simple, right? But it, it's so overlooked because if they don't fix that shit, three months later, they got an ingrained pattern that could very well be the same pattern they had before they had it done. And there anyhow, I, I'm, I'll quit ranting about that, but. Well, no, um, you're absolutely right. And you touched on a couple of things there. And one that, that I'm circling back to from before, um, very, very common that we see folks that have both uh, hip and spine pathology and they overlap. And, and it is uh, to your question earlier, which is the, you know, is it the chicken or the egg? Is your back hurting because your gait's altered because your hip's so bad? Or is it is it a back problem and it, that's just overlapping a hip problem? Uh, what was your experience? Did your back get any better after uh, hip surgery or, or any other things that had to be done? It did. It did. But there's, 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 another, there's another answer here that because the hip surgery, I pretty much knew that training-wise – the next two two months, I'm not going to be able to train the way that I want to train. It's it's all rehab, physical therapy. So why would I not take that same time to address any potential back problems I may have? You know, so as soon as I was able to be able to get into a quadruped or some different position, I would start doing, 
you know, the movements for lower back recovery, rehab, like it was a big problem. So I treated my back like I had surgery on it, rehab-wise, the same way as the surgery I was having for my for my hip. So if, if, basically, if I'm doing rehab for eight weeks, why not rehab everything? And it, it, it's just it's common a, sense to me. It's a great you know, way to so, think about it. So with, with that in mind, it gave me something more to train for, too. Because you you can only do these hip exercises for so long. Now, you're doing them multiple times a day, but it's not like an hour training session or anything like that. So by putting those all together. So I can't say, you know, that the hip surgery helped my back, per se, because there's two weeks of unloading and 100% straight back rehab with this. So I would guess and say most definitely, because I know when I – I will say this, when I came out of surgery, the first thing I did was to arch my back while laying on the table. And I, granted, I know I'm drugged out of my mind and all this other stuff, but the, it hurt a lot. And it didn't hurt at all when I did that. So I'm like, okay, because even if anytime I've been on anesthesia and tons of pain meds and I come out, if something hurts, it still hurts. You just don't care about it. Mm-hmm. You know, the drugs make it so you don't care. But that was probably the the happiest I was in in years to be able to come out of there and just do that simple little arch to be like, oh thank God that's not there. We can fix the rest. because um, that would if it did hurt, then I would have been concerned. Yeah. And not saying that it would have been an issue, but I that I didn't like that. Well it- Hip replacement surgery, too, uh, really is probably the best operation that we have in orthopedics. They're they're very durable. They're very reproducible. And, and so I have spine surgeon partners that, in a lot of instances, will tell folks, yes, okay, you may have a spine problem, but you you may want to fix this hip first and then see, see where it's at from there as mm-hmm. far as if you need some kind of intervention for your spine. You've, you've obviously been uh, at the receiving end of a lot of uh, medical care, orthopedic care. Um, what are the best parts? What are we doing well? And, and, and what, do, what do we as a medical community suck at? I, I can't blame it on the medical community. I really can't because it's a two-way street. You know, as, as I kind of outlined in the email, there's – there's a communication factor that I don't think people, and it took me a long time to figure this out too, that I don't think people are really looking at from, from a distance. I mean, you have, you know, surgeons that they, they know, I've never met a surgeon that doesn't have the best good of the patient in mind, you know? So you have people that all have the best in mind for everybody, but you also have a lot of biases and you have, you have a legal system. So you can't lie, right? So if if I came to you for hip surgery and said, look, man, when when this is done, I want to squat 1,100 pounds, what are you going to say? You know, know, just legally, what can you say? You know, then say I come out of surgery and I was like, look, here's the periodization scheme that I want to do. I'm going to push this to this. Is this okay? I, I have to understand that you're not okay with saying that's okay. That's not your profession. So I got to figure out. Well, how and I, I don't even know. It. I mean, again, where, where do I read that study of, of 1100 pound squatters? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's, there's not exactly. a lot of data points for that. 
Yeah. So, so now see that comes back on that patient, right? Because they're asking they're maybe they're in their mind, they're asking the right question, but they're asking it in the wrong way. Like, how can you ask this question to somebody that's going to take them completely out of the, the legal issue? Cause you don't know me. You don't know your patient. You don't know if I'm going to take what you say, spin it, and then come back and sue you when it don't work right. You know, unfortunately, we kind of got a legal system set up for that. Um, or, or the physical therapist. So you got this big mess, right? And I don't think anybody's going to deny that. I mean, a lot of people won't deny it on record, but I don't work in it, so who cares? Um, but well, let's just say it is what it is. How do you circumvent it? Well, you got to think of how can you ask this question in a better way that's going to take you legally off the table and also understand that you're coming from a science type of background. You work off studies. You don't work off anecdotal evidence unless I'm asking you. Anecdotally, what does this sound like? Now, see, there's a different question. There's a different answer right. you know, to, to be able to come with that. And you've seen, to, to flip this and the, the other side, I can give you tons of lifters that are like, oh, these doctors are idiots, these doctors are idiots. That's fine. I can also give you tons of doctors and surgeons that says, what the hell is wrong with all your meathead people? They're freaking <laughs> stupid. You know, so, okay, this sounds to me like a communication problem. So the way that I've kind of circumvented this is learned how to ask questions in better context and then develop the relationship. This is the advice I have for any strength sports athletes because they're they're looking down the road of soft tissue injuries we we can debate the the bone injuries but it's they're they're going to have a conversation with a sport doctor or a surgeon at some point in their career if they're going to do it for the long haul develop the relationship before you need it you know it's they can still make an appointment maybe not for the surgeon but they can make an appointment for one step away from the surgeon just as a, a welcome relationship, like, hey, look, this is what I do. I just want to start. I'm new to town. I want to set up my, my network, you know, my team of people. And what, it's going to cost them 150 bucks or whatever. Who cares? But at least you're starting to develop a relationship because you've got to kind of take down some of those barriers on both ends because the, the, the athlete also seems to forget that the surgeon's got a prejudice towards you too. Because he's seen ten other people with a goatee and a bald head just like you, and they, <laughs> you know, and, and they they were they were stupid, you know, and they they were suggesting some dumb shit, and you, so you got to break those barriers down, and that isn't going to happen in the five minutes that you're going to see them in an office when they come in to look at your X-rays. So that's my first thing. So I can't say, I, I can say what the athletes do wrong far more than the surgeons. And that's the biggest thing. Well, okay, so maybe maybe not what are we doing wrong, but how do how do we in that those things that you touched on of communicating well and providing context to communicate? How how do I open that up and be more empathetic to what patients, uh, athletic or not, are going through? And how do I how do I open that door? Maybe maybe pose the question back to them in such a way that they would ask it to you in an anecdotal sense. You know, so it isn't that because they have to also understand, like, I'll give you the example of the hip replacement and kind of where I've gone from there. I love to lift heavy, right? It's, it's, it's in my DNA. It's, it's, it's not going to stop. I, I started when I was 12. I, I tried, you know, for several years, I tried to train like a bodybuilder. I enjoyed it, but it's not the same. 
this is, I, I don't know, I doubt it's ever, I'm going to die, you know, squatting 300 pounds for one rep, taking 10 seconds to stand up. It's not going away. So that's that became more of, okay, if this isn't going to go away, this is going to always be on the table. How can I still do this with two hip replacements and, and not destroy the hip? And what I've come up with is, well, since I got to use the safety squat bar because I can't hold the bar. So I got to use a different type of bar. But how about I just always train on a box at two inches high? So, yes, with the hip replacements, you can squat lower than, than parallel. But are you going to – should you do that with four or 500 pounds? Uh, see, there, there's that uh, – right? That's the thing where if we're having a conversation, you'd be like, uh, yeah, right. I, I, I don't know. But so why? So – so why do you not know? Why do we not know? Well, because it's a lot of stress on the joint in that bottom position. Okay, we got that. What else? Well, if you're in that bottom position and you miss and your knee happens to come in, now you got a serious problem. Okay, cool. So what if I go two inches high, but I use a box? So if something was to happen, say I pulled a glute or I pulled a quad, and then I do miss the weight, I'm never squatting lower than parallel because the box is going to stop me. So now the knee can never come in. You see what I'm doing here? I'm like taking the worst case scenarios and I'm starting to eliminate different parts of this. So now I'm not going to go lower than parallel with any heavy weight. I'm not going to be in a situation where I could actually fall over because the box will catch me. And I got spotters too. And my knee could never come in because of the same reason. So now what's left? Well, the, the bottom position is going to be way harder on the hip than the top obviously all right so let's use reverse bands or chains so let's deload that bottom position to where we can keep the top position higher now why do i want the top position higher because i've been training heavy my whole entire life i want to maintain the bone density i spent 30 years developing because that's what's keeping everything else from falling apart so if i reduced all the weight and only squatted 200 pounds my bone density over a period of time is going to be accommodated to that lower weight to where with this, I can now keep it 700, 800 pounds. You see what I'm doing here? So I'm finding a way to basically justify my bullshit, right? But I'm finding a way to, <laughs> to justify my bullshit, but in such a way that maybe this makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I think you're, surgeon. you're you're scratching an itch for what you want to do, but you're building in safety to it, and, you, and you've got stops there to, to eliminate some of the, the catastrophic things that could happen. It, it totally yes. makes sense. Yes, and all, all this kind of came about from conversations with my surgeons, conversations with good physical therapists, where they would give me, no, that's not a good idea for something, and then I would find a way to make it a better idea. Not a good idea, a better <laughs> idea. And then when you start stacking those, then the, the only question that's really, really foggy with everybody is the repetition question, because that's usage. Yeah. Right. So 10 sets of 10 with a lightweight on the squat compared to, well, what if I just worked up to a heavy single, but it only takes me six total reps in the whole workout, a hundred reps to six reps face value, six reps is going to be the safer option. But now the six reps is going to be 800 pounds more. Yeah. You see that there's right. a weird trade that I, I haven't figured the balance to that one out. Yeah. Well, and, and the data that we have on that is, is just time and it, it's thought of as uh, gate cycles. I mean, when they put, 
put these things on wear simulators. They run them for a certain number of cycles. That's um, what we anticipate is, is sort of average usage uh, of these kind of things in a year. But yeah, we don't we don't have data on. Uh, yeah, well, the, here's the thing too with this is you're talking gate cycles, right? So now you're talking the force of a foot hitting the ground, going up through, you know, the leg and into the hip. A leg press doesn't have a gate. Right. You know, if, if, I, if I'm squatting, now granted, if I squat and I have to walk the weight out, yes, there's a gate. But if I'm squatting using a monolift and my feet never leave the floor, see how the, now that makes that 500 pounds on the back probably look better than the 200 pounds on the back that I have to take three steps to set up. That's a great Especially point. if you set up wrong. So those, these are those nuances that I don't think you can really get to unless you're having that conversation. And I personally like the conversations with the surgeons more than I do the physical therapist. That's just, that's my own experience over time is I, I don't know if it's because you guys are in there cutting all the shit and you can see what actually goes on. And I don't know what the difference is, but or I don't know if they're so dead set on their own modalities of rehab that they don't want to think a little bit outside of the box. But those are, that, that's the other weird one because the gait cycle brings me into when I had my first hip done. You know, it's obviously when you're, when you're a lifter and you've been doing this your whole life, every, everything, everything that you've ever done in your life, any medical condition that's ever happened in your life from the age of 12 until 54 was because you lifted weights. You know, it's just, and it's not just the doctors and the surgeons, everything is that, or because you took steroids for a certain period of time, everything. And it's, it's frustrating when you have a certain degree of intelligence because yes, those are factors, right? But if they're always the first factor, what are they missing by jumping to such a quick conclusion so fast? It, yeah, you're 100% right. It's it's very easy for, for all of us to get tunnel visioned on certain things. And, and it happens with, with a lot of patient groups where, you know, the, the total of their health gets reduced to one or two factors. And I, I think it's uh, kind of intellectually lazy on our part. And it's something that we've got to kind of kind of work to overcome those biases when we talk to people and, and really get to the heart of what we're doing. So I think that's yeah. a great point. So this, that was one thing that when I talked to Politi, the first surgeon, was when we were talking about it, we're talking about risk factors. So we're going through my medical history and, you know, my mother's had multiple replacements. My father had multiple replacements. And so his, his first thing to me is, you probably were going to need a hip replacement based just on your family history at some point, probably when you might have been 70, not when you're 45. So that, that that's definitely a factor. The other one was I've weighed over 240 pounds since I was a senior in high school. So every step you take, gait, right, for, for all – in a lot of those years, 270, 300 pounds. Then there's the training. He said, so you can't look at one in isolation – of not seeing the others. And that that always resonated with me because I do have arthroarthritis and it's throughout my whole body. And that's not the training, but the training's making the, the, the negative impacts of these come sooner. Mr. Tate, Kevin Brown here. You've had such an inspiring uh, powerlifting career, but I'd love to hear more about Dave Tate, 
the entrepreneur. Tell me about the creation of Elite FTS. Uh, what inspired you to start that business, and, and where is it now? Okay. We, um, I founded the business in 1998. I was, I was, yeah. My whole life I've been infatuated with, obsessed with this strength training thing. And so through college, I ended up graduating with exercise science and nutrition degree. I worked as a volunteer strength coach through high school, through, you know, it's been a part of my life in every every facet. So when I was in college and still competing, I met Louis Simmons from Westside Barbell, and he wanted me to move to Columbus to train at his gym. So after I graduated, I made that move. And I was working in a corporate fitness center for probably eight years. And I got to a point there to where I just had my son. And I was working from five in the morning until nine at night. Pretty much every day of the week except for leaving to train and then to come back. And I couldn't make any more money. I was was tapped out. You just... So my clients and I sat down and we started brainstorming different ideas on how I could accomplish what I wanted to accomplish. And one of those was to have freedom of workspace. So so I don't have to be training somebody in an environment 12 hours a day. I could maybe be at home. I could be someplace else. And so anyhow, we decided on, uh, I was already doing seminars and stuff for Louie. So we just, uh, e-commerce is kind of what we, came up with so I was already doing seminars I was always already doing consulting and things like that and people were asking me where to get certain products I was talking about bands were one uh, the, the products are irrelevant but that just kind of steamrolled into well why don't I sell these products so elite FTS was founded for that was the the, the personal reason the other reason was when I first got online and probably about the same time, 96, you know, somewhere around there. And I'm looking at the information people are reading about powerlifting, strength and conditioning. Irregardless of my bias, they were still wrong. It was a lot of really weird misinformation. God, I don't want to say that word. There's a a lot of really weird information out there. So I went on forums and started answering those. So it was kind of an accumulation of those things. So we found it in, in 98 and have been in business now for, what, 22 years? It's been slow growth. It's definitely not been a fast growth. It's not been a dynamic growth, but it's, it's grown in the way that I appreciate it. Under the premise of being able to give content as much as we can to anybody who wants it for free. So we don't have a paywall. We don't charge for the articles. We don't. And we don't do any of that because all the best things that I've ever learned in this industry came from, you know, mentors of mine, training partners of mine, people who didn't really have to help me out. So and it, it's this is something that seems to be getting lost in the society we live in today, that a lot of people aren't passing on, you know, the things that they were given as they were coming up because, you know, monetary, there's a lot of reasons for that. So... That, that's that's the history. I mean, it's a very short short history because there's 22 years in there. But um, how can the audience uh, connect with your business? 
just go to EliteFTS.com. We have a YouTube channel that we're putting more and more information on now. But on our on our site, they're going to be able to find. Oh man, there's probably there's a, I, I don't want to overwhelm people. There's probably a million pages of content, but th there's thousands of articles they're going to find on strength training. Now I, I should preface this and say that. Our target market are people that are going to put training as one of the top four priorities in their life. So they're, they're not going to come to our website and find, you know, health and strength and conditioning articles that they're going to find in like Main Street Media. They're, they're just not going to find that. So, um, yeah, that's that's it. Yeah, I'm a terrible salesperson when it comes to that. <laughs> well, it's a great-looking site. I'm looking at it right now. Uh, you know, you talked about seminars, consulting. I'm looking at the education uh, part of your page right now. Uh, you seem like you're a teacher trapped in a power left uh, power lifter's body. Do you enjoy the instructional aspect of what you do? I do. I, I actually, I, there's some frustration that kind of comes with that. I enjoy that the most, and that's what I make zero revenue from. And we're, and that falls back to the reason why I'm teaching in the first place. So it, that's the weird balance that we have from the business perspective is if, you, if, if we overextend ourselves on all the education that we're giving out, then we're not selling enough product to be able to produce the education. So it's this weird dichotomy. But if I could have it my own way, I wouldn't have any of the e-commerce shit and it would just be you know the, the teaching and, and all those things but you know i don't that's a road i don't want to go down you brought up the word mentor uh who were the mentors in your life that really helped shape your career um there's 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 mentors and moments so i would say the things that have shaped my career more so are moments more than mentors so some examples would be I, I, I wrestled through junior high and high school and I used to get just killed, you know, I mean, all but just wrecked. And my mom was late picking me up one day and I was running the stairs and I just kept running and running. I don't know what got in my mind or what happened, but I just I got pissed off. I'm like, this is I'm sick of this shit. I'm sick of getting beat all the damn time. And so when the coach, Bill Mullen, come walking through. He said, what are you doing? You know, because maybe 45 minutes after practice is over, I said, I'm just sick of getting beat. And he said, well, if you just keep working harder than everybody else, you'll never get beat again. And that resonated. That changed my life. You know, one sentence changed every fucking thing. And um, I didn't, I went undefeated for years after that. So now it wasn't just that statement. You know, it was now this validates what I'm doing here. I just need to work harder than everybody else. You know, if they're better than me, that's only because I'm not working harder. And, you know, another situation would be I was never the smartest. That's for certain. Learning disabilities, whatever whatever titles that they had back then, you know, now it's titles change all the time. I had every single one of them. Barely graduated from high school, went on to college, flunked out my first semester of college. Just figured, you know what, I gave it a shot. You know, this this isn't for me, you know. So I moved back home, was working in a factory, went back out to the weight room and helped some of the players. One of my old, a different wrestling coach, came out and asked me how I was doing. I'm like, yeah, that's fine. And he just kept pressing, "How are you doing? How are you doing? How are you doing?" And he says, "No, I want to know because I'm talking to him about training." 
because the, the one semester I was in college, I found this real cool place called a library, and I found all kinds of strength and conditioning journals. And it just, it was unbelievable all the information I was finding on training that I didn't even know existed. So I'm telling them about all this and how I'm applying it and how I was using it with people in the gym I was working at. And so he keeps pressing and keeps going back to the school thing. And I kept trying to pivot off of it. And I said, look, man, it didn't work out. I got a 0.75 grade average. I'm, I'm done. They, they kicked me out. I, I, even if I wanted to go back, I can't go back to the fall. I'm done. He says, you're not done. You're just fucking lazy. And it's, you know, that was another one of those one sentence, you know, so I'm driving home, end up pulling over to the side of the road, sat there for an hour asking myself, am I fucking stupid? Like I've been told my whole life, or am I just lazy? You know, is this like running those stairs? Do I just need to do more? So I went back and then ended up graduating with a 3.5. So you see what I'm saying? Those things there have more power than any mentor I've ever had. So now from a mentor, I can say I trained under Louis Simmons for 14 years. I learned more about training from him than anybody else. He didn't change my life, though. Those guys changed my life. You know, so those those are the difference makers. One thing that you said that had a lot of power uh, in, in to me was the whole quote of passion trumps everything. Uh, where did that come from in your life? And if you could expand a little bit on it uh, for the audience, that would be awesome. Well, it's <clears throat> motivation is one thing, right? Anybody can get motivated to do something, but it's not, it's fleeting. You know, it never lasts. A passion, if you can figure out what your drive is, and I don't like the whole what's your why thing, because your why can change. But your, your, whatever you're passionate about, you're going to figure out how to make that work, you know, and I've obviously been passionate about this weightlifting thing since I was 12 freaking years old and all through my life, you know, it's what do you want to go to college for and study that crap? You need to study like business. And so I studied all this other shit for years and so I just said, you know what, fuck everybody. This is what I want to do. So I, you know, I was, I, it took me six, seven years to get a bachelor's degree, but that was because of, Everybody, what are you ever going to do with this weightlifting crap? That's all I ever heard my whole life. You know, now I got a business for it. You know, so that, that's where it comes from. It's because everybody that, and don't get me wrong, all these people that were helping me, it was, they thought what they were saying was for their own, for, for my own good. Like, there's no, when I was growing up, there were, the only people that were making money in this training thing were like celebrity trainers like Richard Simmons. You know, so it's like there's no future here. There's no future here. But I don't think that what they really realized they were doing is every time they were telling me you can't do this, it was just firing that passion even more. It's like pissing me off. Like, don't tell me what I can and can't do. You know, I will figure this out, you know. And um, so that's where it comes from, because everybody and I, nobody's malicious. Well, there there are malicious people, but most of the people that are going to be close to your life. They're not malicious. They're they're trying to do what's for their own good, or what they think's for your own good. But is it really? Because if it was, wouldn't they be trying to help you figure out how to use what you're passionate about? Because if you figure that out, maybe you're not going to be the richest person, but you're going to be happy. I really wish you hadn't have brought up Richard Simmons. I'm going to have sweat into the oldies <laughs> in my head for the next month, and I'm, I'm holding you personally responsible for that. Uh, you brought up steroids. 
uh, earlier, uh, back in the 80s, when I was going through my weightlifting routine, uh, D-Ball and Test were on my uh, buffet until mm-hmm. some health issues. Uh, I had to shut that uh, whole process down. I'm just curious. Uh, I see a lot of things out there now that I do not remember from back in the 80s. Uh, growth hormone certainly was not on the agenda back then. Where are we in the performance-enhancing stuff? I know you've got thoughts on it and uh, would love to hear it. It's it's always evolving and it's always changing. So what what I put out there before anything else is when when it is the conversation of performance enhancing drugs and they're they're more freely discussed today than they've been at any time. The <clears throat> what I want to make known is I don't condone nor do I dissuade anybody from that. I just do not want to be part of their decision-making process. That has to be a choice that they make, you know, with their own doctor. So I have no problem discussing it with, you know, a medical professional um, because there's checks and balances with that. But when when you have any type of influence in this industry, a lot of people are just trying to find a way to validate what they what they their thoughts are. So when it's when it's somebody with performance enhancing drugs if they what i and this is with pretty much anything in training as well is i always tell people to figure out what their bias is what their position on it is and then go figure out exactly what the opposite is so if if i'm going to if i'm going to tell somebody to train a certain way and I'm, and that's what i'm going to put out for them to do then i better be the biggest critic of that way as well Otherwise, I don't know it well enough to be able to even suggest it in the first place. So the, the same with the anabolic. So the, the thing, the, the biggest concern I have with them today is the black, the black market is, it's, it's, it's a black market. So you don't know what you're getting. So I've had, here, here's a, a really good story to kind of tie this in. I had somebody one time write me this elaborate anabolic cycle that went over a 16-week period of time using different compounds based upon different half-lives and then how those half-lives are going to stack and how they're going to peak for you know whatever the, the meat was. On paper, and hell, even listening to this, it's like, man, this is the holy grail. Until I asked, how do I know? this oral is this oral but not this oral because they're all capsules how do i know how do i know this is test and isn't deca or how do i know you, you see what i'm saying because now this is all based upon half-lives and if it's the wrong compound you just fucked it all up how do i even know the dose is right so there's and so that's before i even get into the fact of are there compounds in there that could do more harm than good I'm just talking about straight dosing and half-lives. And because and, and, what's, what's a dealer going to do, right? If two compounds are going to have pretty much the same effect on somebody, but one costs half as much as the other one, you really think they're putting the other one in there? Well, and it's interesting uh, of what overlap some of these compounds may have around recovery with orthopedic procedures. There's uh, some, some limited data out there about uh, – some oral anabolic agents um, in burn and ICU patients and in patients with wasting diseases and how these things might 
increase collagen synthesis and may have some things that actually overlap uh, with surgery and with recovery and, and things that that would be potential applications. You know, we have some data even around essential amino acid supplementation and what it does to to prevent muscle loss around a knee replacement surgery or things like that. Um, but it, exactly the point you've touched on, uh, big pharma's kind of uh, abandoned a lot of these compounds, and so everything is um, just out there, gray market, black market. It's hard to, to have real drugs and know what, what their applications might be in some of these scenarios. Well, here's, I mean, you touched on a good thing here is with recovery and rehab is let's say somebody has a a total hip replacement and they want to take growth hormone and just basic testosterone FNH to be able to help with the recovery. The, the first question I would pose to them is, based upon any research that you can find, or even anecdotal evidence, how many weeks do you think you're going to shave off your recovery? Two? One? Because you're not going to cut it in half. Just that, that's, that's a fact. Right. It's bone. right? It's, the bone still has to heal. So we're dealing with a bone right? that's going to take, what, four to six months to heal? So are you going to get this down to three? You know, it's, what, what are we talking about? Two weeks, you know, say, let's say it's a soft tissue injury. This even gets more ridiculous because a soft tissue injury typically might take three to six weeks. So if you're going to take a boatload of anabolics to help, what are you going to get a week maybe? So you're going to go from six to five weeks? Okay, so now we can talk about is that even viable to be part of the discussion if we're talking about a very small period of time. But, okay, that, that, let's set that aside. Now on the other side, rehab sucks. If you're used to lifting bigger weight, you're used to training in a certain regiment for years and years and years, that all gets derailed. And now you're set on this certain program that you're really restricted in what you can do. You're not as mobile, and your diet's probably going to go out the window with that. Now, if somebody tells you, if you take growth hormone and a little bit of test, and that will help your recovery, and that person makes that investment in those compounds to take that, What's their compliance going to be? Their compliance of Kitafel to 50% is going to be 100%. So it wasn't the drugs that necessarily helped. It was the compliance. Right. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of confounding variables in there as well. And you're also, you know, even not necessarily dealing with shaving off time, but not everybody is uh, coming into this kind of thing with your same type of background. So you definitely see uh, folks that have you know, all manner of metabolic disease and are very detrained and deconditioned going into some of these procedures. So mm-hmm. th- those type of apl- applications may have more to do with, uh, you know, getting them to a better level or helping get them enough strength to ambulate or to kind of use their upper extremities to help them uh, during their early yeah. recovery. Uh, yeah. But it's really complex. And, and I, I've, you know, just in a, you know, kind of in the, in the doctor's lounge kind of conversation with some internist friends and things like that have floated it out there. It's just got so many moving parts. And if you start giving somebody supplemental testosterone and then, you know, are they on it forever at that point, you've got to do some type of post-cycle therapy with them afterwards. Um, having an, an easy or a affordable way to kind of integrate some of these things is really, really difficult. And, you know, though, though it could be, um, 
it could be a good time though for the the D trained people just to have a basic nutrition conversation because the nutrition is going to help them with the recovery too. 100%. And if, if, if they're going to be doing this for a month, there's a pretty good chance a lot of those habits will stick with them after that month too. It's a great thought. Uh, Dave, I can't thank you enough for doing this. What, uh, what are you passionate about right now and what's on the horizon for you? Um, well, the business takes up pretty much most of my time where the, what we're passionate about right now is where uh, we're, we're expanding our education side. And so it's, I'm trying to think of how to, we're, we're looking to gather, you know, a bigger market with our education. So we've basically stripped it all the way down to its nuts and bolts and then just started to build it back up again. So over this this next year, there it's it's I'm real passionate about where what's where that's gonna go, what it's gonna look like, and you know, what it's gonna be able to bring to be able to help help people that are still in the um the target demographic I talked about, but I think for so long we were too geared towards strength athletes and not as geared towards those non-competitive strength athletes, the people that just love to train and are serious about it. And so we're, we're going to start formulating more content for, for that sector because it's, they're, they're almost as serious. You know, what I like to call them is they're, they're all kind of strength, strength athletes at heart, but they're not willing to do the last eight weeks before a bodybuilding competition or before a powerlifting meet. That's when things get more risky, dangerous, um, and, and sucks more of your life. But I, I don't see why anybody would want to do that anyhow if they weren't competing. Like, who wants to live like that? But all the other stuff. So that, that I'm really passionate about. Well, to say that you have a, a ton of content would be a vast understatement. Everybody can certainly check that out at EliteFTS.com. And you may have touched on it with your answer to that. What do you want your legacy to be? I don't care. You know, it's, <laughs> I don't want to sound, well, I don't want to sound condescending. You know, I've been asked that a lot, and I really don't care. And the reason for that is, and the, the best way I've been able to explain how I kind of see this it's a little morbid is if you've ever been to a funeral you see different layers of people right so you see the people in the back of the room in the far back of the room they just stop in say hi leave usually those are just like friends of friends or you know people that are just showing you know just to, to honor or, or to be there to support you know the people that lost a loved one then the closer you get out this is i'm talking during the wake now or during the visiting hours not the the actual procession as you get closer you're going to see people that were closer to the family so you basically but the, even the people that are closer to the family so say they're 10 feet away from the casket 15 feet they're more concerned about how long can they stay until they need to go you know so they're kind of like looking around and you know is it good is it going to look bad you know and um then you get closer to to the casket and the people that basically never leave the casket those are the people that they were the difference makers in your life and you were a difference maker in their life. You know, they're, they're the ones that matter. And so people spend too much of their time worrying about what all those people in the back of the room 
or worse yet, all the people that aren't even in the room, they spend way too much time worrying about what they're going to think when they're gone. Instead of what are those people going to think that tears are hitting you when you're in your casket? That's why I don't care about legacy. That's not morbid, man. That's profound. Uh, I thank you for sharing that. And I thank you so much for your time today with us. Uh, This has been awesome. What an incredible experience today to be able to spend some time with Dave Tate and hear his thoughts about all things orthopedic. Um, Got off onto some interesting topics, some fun things, uh, some really poignant things. I I just think that hearing from uh, people with different perspectives on what we do uh, adds so much to the conversation, adds so much to our thinking about where we go Uh, how we keep things real, and how we get better and better at every aspect of orthopedic surgery and joint replacement and how we care for our patients and those around us. This has been another episode of Ortho Real. Thanks so much for joining us.